The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guests illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. And welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, a conversation of hope for Tuesday, July 20th. I'm Terry Arango with my guest, Shannon Nash Esquire. Shannon Nash is a CPA, attorney, author, and entrepreneur. She is the president of Nash Management Group, an entertainment, tax, and business management firm. Shannon is the author of the award-winning book, For the Love of Money, The 411 to Taking Control of Your Taxes and Building Your Net Worth. She also wrote The Vault Guide to Tax Law Careers, Healing the, Helping the Nonprofit Client, and the Tax-Exempt Toolkit. Shannon is passionate about advocating for children with special needs and is the former secretary of Cure Autism Now, Now Autism Speaks. Welcome, Shannon. Thanks, Terry. Well, Shannon, how many autism-related charities are there currently? And, you know, I don't know if anyone has a, a, a total number of, of the number of autism-related charities, but if you just did a search um, on GuideStar.org, which is the premier online char- charity database, you'll get over 2,000 results for just the word autism alone. And I'm sure if you went and Googled autism and charity, you get even more than that. So there's quite a few um, charities out there that are focused either on autism or um, autism and special needs are related to their mission. And what do these charities cover? Um, I think it runs the gamut. I mean, you have organizations that um, are more parent support type of groups and organizations. You have organizations that deal with um, advancing research. Um, other organizations are out there that focus on um, social skills or therapeutic um, skills or that type of thing. So pretty much, you know, at, the, at this time, if you've got a child or, you know, of a person um, with autism, there is a nonprofit out there that can help them and, and the family. It's definitely uh, an interesting time um, in this field and certainly different um, than when I started thinking about autism over 12 years ago or about 10 years ago, actually, when my son was first diagnosed. Mm. And these charities that you mentioned, how big or small are they, and how do they impact the community? Oh, they're huge to the community. I, I, my 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 guess is that the average um, autism related organization is fairly small, probably with a budget of less than twenty five thousand um, dollars. But what they lack in terms of of money, they make up with in terms of total impact to the community um, because they're typically um, the organizations that, um, from a parent standpoint and from a resource standpoint for someone with autism, provide all of that local information that, you know, one needs to really 
um, advance one's life and deal with um, education and skills and, and, and the like. So I don't necessarily think I would I, – I look at the dollar amount. I look at kind of the impact of the community. And as a whole, these autism organizations are very well organized and very well run and very impactful. I would think that they, like you, are just as passionate about helping the kids. Absolutely, absolutely. From what I've seen in my, my travels across the country and dealing with different nonprofit organizations, I mean, th- this is a group that is very passionate about um, not only helping, the, you know, the kids and the people with autism, but advancing, you know, the cause in all communities, really. Why would some people who'd like to set up an autism-related charity be reluctant to do that? You know, when when you... When you look at the process of setting it up, and, you know, there's a lot of information out there on the website. Even the IRS on their website, irs.gov, has a lot of actually really good information about setting up a nonprofit. Um, It is a lot of work. And I think for people who are dealing with somebody um, who has autism and they have jobs and they have, you know, significant others and all kinds of other things going on, the thought of putting the time into setting it up is often very daunting and intimidating, really, um, for a lot of people. So I, I will wind up talking to people who just want, they want to do it, but they want somebody to break down the steps for them because they've read so much on it and they're confused, you know? Yeah, it's like uh, going to a doctor's office for your child. Uh, there's all this paperwork to fill out, but these are exactly the parents who don't have the time to fill out the paperwork. Yep. So, yeah, it's kind of similar. So it's great that you can help us simplify the process. So, Shannon, what are the major steps in the nonprofit organization uh, set up uh, those categories? Yeah, I like to break it down for people in, in three steps because I think it makes it easier for somebody to kind of, you know, digest what, what is needed to do this. The first step um, is that you have to set up the organization. It has to exist as a legal, viable organization. And, by, and to do that, you have to file um, basically articles of incorporation in a particular state. And that's typically the state where you live and where you're going to run the organization. And the good news is that most of um, the states, their Secretary of State's website or, or comparable website in their state, have very good websites that go over these are what the Articles of Incorporation are, here's a sample of one, and this is what you need to do to, to file one. Um, so step one of the process is a very important step because it's, it's getting your feet out there, it's getting the organization started, um, and that's what starts what I like to call the charity clock, if you will, for when you are really a viable um, nonprofit organization. Because step two is when you actually, after you formed in your state, is when you actually file with the IRS. I think what a lot of people um, don't know is that the step two is really what makes you um, what we like to call a charity, meaning you file with the IRS to say, I want to be exempt. I do not want to pay federal taxes. And I'm going to fill out this paperwork, and I'm going to prove to you that my activities and my structure warrant me being treated as a charity or a tax-exempt organization. Um, a lot of us, I think, know the name 501c3. Um, well, that is just literally because you go to Section 501, subparagraph C, subparagraph, little paragraph 3 of the Internal Revenue Code, and in there is a paragraph that talks about this is what a charity is. So to do that, you've got to file something with the IRS. 
And to go back to my step one, why I say step one is so important is because let's say that, um, Terry, you and I started a nonprofit back in, uh, we filed in the state of California in April, okay? Um, but we don't file step two with the IRS until, let's say, the end of July this month. Well, let's say the IRS doesn't get back to us on our paperwork until the end of 2010, so December 2010. The good news is that when they get back to us saying, yay, you are a charity, and that letter, by the way, is called the IRS determination letter, when you get that letter back in your hand, the date on that letter, it's going to say, hey, you got this on December 31st, but your tax-exempt status, your 501c3 status is retroactive back to April, the date that you file with your state not the date that you put the application in with the IRS at the end of July, not the date that they gave you the letter, but the date that you started in your state. And why is that important? Because people who have given you money during the whole year while you were waiting for that letter back from the IRS, they can treat the money they gave you as charitable contributions. And that's very important and viable to someone who's trying to be a charity, that the people who are giving you money, your donors, they need you to be recognized as a charity so they can get their tax deductions. Okay, well, what if I file with my state in September of 2010 and I send off the Form 1023 to the IRS in October of 2010 and the IRS comes back in December, and that seems like a short time, but um, for this example here, and the IRS comes back in December and says, mm, not so much you forgot to cross an I and dot a T on page 7040, so you do that and you send it back to them, and then in April of 2011, they come back and say, ooh, sorry, there wasn't uh, this this widget filled out here on page 9,040, and then you finally get your uh, yay determination letter in June 2011. Uh, what do the people who've given you charitable contributions, donations to your organization do if they've given you those donations in September 2010 and you didn't get your yay letter until June 2011? Right. Yeah, I mean, you have to be very honest with those donors because you're still waiting for your letter. And so um, it doesn't happen often, but in those particular cases, you basically tell your, your donors that you, you would probably suggest they check with their tax advisor, but that they file a tax extension because you don't want them claiming. You certainly can't uh, represent to them that you've received um, charitable status, tax exempt status from the IRS because you haven't gotten that letter yet. Um, so you have to be honest with them and tell them that you're still waiting for your status and that they should check with their tax advisor, but more than likely they may need to go on tax extension while you're waiting for your letter. Now, I will tell you in practice, Terry, in general, if the IRS comes back to you, let's use your example, um, in December with, you know, you didn't do these things right, typically that means you're assigned to an actual um, agent and that agent's going to be working with you back and forth. They're not going to really wait that long to come back to you and say that you, you know, you messed up again and you need to do this. It's pre usually pre a pretty quick process after they send you that first letter to correct something. So it typically gets resolved within a month for oh, sure. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. Sounds like, uh, sounds like, however, it's a good idea to send off that form 1023 maybe in February or so. Yeah, you should send out, and yeah, the 1023 again, that's the form that you send to the IRS. It should be sent off as soon as you get it done for sure. I 100% agree. Um, and then I just wanted to, to get to the third step real quick. 
the third step is after you've gotten your, as we were calling it, your yay letter, I like that, from the IRS, um, you have to actually, a lot of people forget this step. You have to go back to your state because in many states, there's state income taxes. Um, and not every state, but certainly in California or, you know, other states, there's a state income tax. And so you actually have to file a form with your state. It's not as hard as the 1023 in the sense of uh, how much information you have to provide, but you do need to provide your state with something saying, hey, look at this, the IRS has said I don't have to pay taxes, and I don't want to pay taxes to you as well. And the good news, again, is most states have very good websites that explain what you need to do as a nonprofit. Um, and in addition, there might be some um, some minor local filings. A nonprofit might have to get a business license. It will have to register to solicit donations um, with usually it's the attorney general's office. So I always say that for, the, for that type of step, you should definitely look at your state website because they usually have very good information. And that might be the time when you actually do talk to a professional, an accountant, or an attorney in, who's you know, familiar in this field to just get an idea of what else do I need to file, and he or she may be able to help you with those filings. Okay, and we can reiterate this some more towards the end of the show. Let's summarize what you've said so far. You've identified that in order to set up an autism-related charity, you need to become a legal entity, and that's filing articles of incorporation. You need to file the federal, uh, the RS Form 1023 to actually become a nonprofit, apply to be tax-exempt, apply to be a charity, and then you have to file some forms with your state. And let's get into what the major things are that need to be covered in that first step in the articles of incorporation and touch upon that before we go to break. Okay, great, oh, yeah. There's yeah. the break music. Let's pick up with that when we come back, okay? All right, wonderful. Great. We'll be back with Shannon Nash talking about setting up an autism-related charity when we come back from break here at the Voice of America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. 
Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Shannon Nash Esquire talking about setting up an autism-related charity. And Shannon, if listeners would like to look you up and get more information, do you have a website they can go to? Absolutely, yes. They can go. My website is nashgroup-usa.com. That's nashgroup um, with a dash, usa.com. Okay, very good. And before the break, I was asking you about the major things that need to be covered in the Articles of Incorporation, which is part of step one in making your organization a legal entity. Yes, and so we were talking about what goes in the Articles. And, um, again, in general, the state website um, where you are going to incorporate will have um, typically an example and a form that you have to fill out with a lot of information. The, the important thing to do um, in filling that out is to make sure when you're talking about what the purposes of the organization are that you try to be a little more detailed than just saying, my purposes are going to be charitable. And in fact, try to be specific about the types of things that your um, your organization is going to focus on. Um, I've I've kind of put together a couple of um, specific purposes that I see in um, some of the autism-related organizations, and um, they would focus on things like to promote the advancement of scientific research in the area of autism, or to provide assistance, support, and services to those affected with autism to provide support assistance to parents and families impacted by autism, including educational programs, support groups, and workshops. Those are the type of um, things you would want to put into your purposes. But you can, you know, again, this is not a one-size-fits-all type of thing. It should be very specific to you. If, those, if, if your supports are really focusing on, you know, the greater um, Los Angeles area or, you know, the Marietta, Georgia area, you should put that in your purposes, I think it being as specific as possible uh, is the best thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, the other things that have to be in your articles are absolutely required by the Internal Revenue Code. And, you know, in some states, Terry, they have this actually already built into the nonprofit form because they realize a lot of people don't know this. In other states, you actually have to attach um, a one-page addendum. So, again, if there's any place where you're going to wind up, if you've got a budget and it's, you know, a small budget, where you're going to wind up hiring um, professional help from an attorney or accountant, this is a place where I would suggest because you absolutely have to have this language in your articles. And if you don't have them, although your state may accept you, when you file with the Internal Revenue Service and you fill out the Form 1023, which I know you're very familiar with, Terry, um, the, uh, the IRS is going to ask you about these questions and ask you if they're included in your organizational documents. And if they're not, you're not going to be approved until you amend your articles. And they are, um, 
dealing with a couple of areas. One is lobbying um, and one is political campaigns. And in general, um, an organization cannot engage in what's called a substantial amount of lobbying. So you have to put that in writing. An organization cannot engage or interfere in political campaigns. You have to put that in writing. An organization um, also has to put in there that there's a prohibition is what we call it, and it basically has to say that it is going to be um, prohibited from doing um, private benefit and private endearment, and those are very specific um, terms of art in the in the legal community. Um, but it basically, the language typically says something like, no part of the net earnings of the corporation shall inure to the benefit of the officers, directors, et cetera. That's called private inurement. Um, and then you also talk about, you will make sure that you don't have what's called private benefit. And these are just really um, specific legal terms that I don't want to spend a lot of time going into, but I want to note that you've got to have this language in there, and if at all possible, this is where you'd want to make sure you seek professional help to make sure you understand the prohibitions and that you put the right language um, in your articles. But how can I tell what is considered private inurement on my behalf? Is it me taking uh, a taxi from a conference that I'm at for research purposes, or is it right. me getting special favors somehow by yeah, yeah. exposure at my charity? What's private in your mind? I mean, I think the, I, you know, and it's one of those things where, of course, there is no um, black and white test here, <laughs> that it is definitely areas of gray. You know, so private um, enormous is something you just cannot, um, you cannot do. And, and the case where you see this is where it's, it's pretty um, egregious, where the person is basically using the charity, as I like to say, as their private um, pocketbook, if you will. And when you see it, you really, you really know it. Um, whereas private benefit is something that says, you know, yes, you are getting a benefit because of something that the charity is doing, Terry, but it's incidental, it's small, and the IRS is not going to um, revoke your tax exempt status because of that. Um, the example that I like to, to, to give is where you've got um, someone who's on a board who also works for um, a big um, company, let's say uh, a pharmaceutical company or something like that. And um, he, this person is on a board of a hospital, let's say, and the hospital opens up a new cancer wing, and it just happens that this person's company also makes cancer drugs. Well, that in and of itself is there may be some private benefit, meaning when you go to the, the press release and everybody's standing there and shaking hands and all that type of stuff, and the person on the board is listed as, you know, this is, you know, Terry Aranga, president or, you know, of so-and-so pharmaceutical company, you're getting a benefit because your company and your name is being put out there, but that's it. You're not getting anything else more than that. It's an incidental benefit. That's fine. I think where you have private inurement would be that let's say that you also um, had had a family member who was suffering from an ailment and you said to the hospital, hey, look, you know, if my company gives you this money and I, my nonprofit does these things with the hospital, you'll make sure that my sister-in-law goes up on your list as to, you know, getting treatment. You see what I'm saying? That's clearly a huge private inurement to you. It's inuring to you specifically. It's not incidental. It's not small. It's huge, and compared to the rest of the public, it's an unfair advantage. Ah, uh, okay. You know what I mean? And But for your relationship with the nonprofit, you would not be getting this advantage. Okay. 
Is that why the IRS form to uh, form 1023 asks about all sorts of relationships between yes. board members and board members having other companies and things like that? Absolutely, absolutely. It is it is looking at and trying to make sure that those that that there is no private inurement and that to the extent there's some private benefits, they're incidental and they're small. Okay. I know that something that comes up a lot of the time in the autism advocacy community um, are issues concerning political candidates who do or do not support different things related to the interests of kids with autism. So can you give us a specific example of where crossing the line into lobbying or participating in political campaigns would go and also um, I think there's some percentage of your time or resources that you're allowed to spend sending out email blasts about related things without it being considered lobbying or participation in political campaigns. Yeah, so there's two things. People get this confused all the time uh, because, you know, the, the political campaigns and lobbying seem, you know, they're so kind of closely intertwined. So, you know, lobbying is specifically trying to influence legislation. That's it. Is there a bill that's out there on the floor that you are trying to pass, that you're trying to get passed, that you're trying to get defeated, and you're telling people that you want them to follow this because that is lobbying. And an organization can do lobbying, but the rule is is that it cannot do a substantial amount of it. And, of course, there's no black and white test as to what is considered a perm- as a permissible uh, amount of lobbying or substantial or, or, th- or otherwise. There's some court cases out there that kind of look at some facts and circumstances. And luckily, um, the IR- there is a way to um, make an election with the IRS under a code section 501H. And to re- the, the takeaway from there is that you can actually file a form with the IRS. The form number is 5768. And you can basically say on that form, you know, dear IRS, I, I'm going to do some lobbying, but I'm not going to do that much. And certainly the amount I'm going to do is not going to raise to a substantial level. And there's a couple of tests that the IRS looks at as far as what substantial is, and I think that's what you're getting at in talking about the percentage. What it really looks at is how much you're spending on your lobbying. And if you just remember, I mean, um, as a rule of thumb, they look at are your they break lobbying down into different types of lobbying activities. There's, you know, lobbying that's called direct lobbying. There's grassroots lobbying. And just keep in mind that um, this is another area where if you are an organization that's going to get into it, you absolutely want to talk to an expert because you want to fill out the form. You want to make sure you understand the different categories. And you want to make sure that whatever you're spending is not going to be anywhere close to over a million dollars. If that's not going to be the case for you, then you should file the Form 5768. You check a box, you make an election, and pretty much any of the lobbying that you do will be safe um, and you're not going to run afoul of the IRS rules because you're, you're just not spending that much money and time on influencing legislation. That's lobbying. Um, and to be clear, it has to be, you know, legislation, not um, what uh, different agencies have. Like, for example, certain agencies may have regulations as opposed to like a legislation or a bill at your state level or at your federal level. It's not that. Um, it's not also what's not lobbying is if you have what they call nonpartisan analysis, meaning you look at an issue and you give, um, you give opinions from both sides regarding the legislation. That's not lobbying because you're giving a fair and balanced um, 
exposition of the facts of what's going on, and then you're telling people, you know, make up your own decision. That's not lobbying. And even if you held like a, a symposium or something like that that the nonprofit is sponsoring where you have people from all sides getting up and talking about their um, stance on the lobbying, that's not trying to influence legislation. So all that stuff is exempted out of lobbying definition anyway. The takeaway here is most organizations, particularly autism-related organizations, the, the vast majority of them are not going to run a front of the lobbying laws and should probably just file the Form 5768. For those organizations that feel like this is going to be a huge um, part of what they're doing, they not only should talk to a professional, they may even want to consider forming a different organization like an affiliate organization, and those are called 501c4s, and let all the lobbying be done through that organization. So I know I've given you an earful, but it's just, it's just the takeaway is that most organizations don't have to worry about it following an election, and if you do, go to an expert because there's ways to be able to do it and not jeopardize your taxes and status. Are 501c4s exempt? Yes, they are, but they don't give charitable contributions to people who give them money. Ah, okay. They don't pay taxes themselves, but if you give money to them, you don't get a charitable deduction tip for that. Okay, and insofar as political campaigns go, I know with the last election there were some groups talking about, um, you know, uh, McCain said this, Obama said that, this is what we think, and they sent it out to, you know, 50,000 or however yeah. many members. Was that participating in a political Yeah, you know, every year, I mean, and right now we're in the middle of election cycles coming up in a lot of states as well and for, for Senate seats and, and things of that nature. And so this comes up all the time, and I get all kinds of people will send me emails, they'll send me, you know, nowadays I'll get links from YouTube videos, and they'll say, see, this person's doing this, and I thought you told me we can't do political campaign um, activities. And you know what I liken it to, Terry? Um, people aren't supposed to run red lights, yet every day if you look out of my office and look at the traffic light on the corner, I guarantee you I'm going to see somebody running a red light. It's just the reality. People break this law all the time. You, the, the law is very clear, and it's, it's charities are absolutely barred. They cannot participate in political campaigns. That means they, they're not allowed to get up there. Um, churches have had a, some churches have had a, a big problem with this, and, the, and it's very public, and the IRS is still, um, you know, dealing with some of these churches where you'll have the person stand up in front of the church and say, you know, in so many words, we support this candidate. Cannot do it. The church, the organization, nonprofit, cannot do it. What gets confusing is that um, you will have the person who runs the organization is typically a person that, you know, um, a lot of people know and respect that person's opinions. And so that person um, obviously has freedom of speech. So as long as they make it clear that I am supporting candidate X in my individual capacity, not on behalf of the organization, I know you know I'm related to this organization, but this organization is in no way supporting candidate X. I, Terry Aranga, am supporting uh, candidate X. That's how you have to be able to do something like that if you um, feel strongly enough to um, support or oppose a candidate. But the organization in and of itself cannot do that at all, and it is um, something that could cause it to lose its tax-exempt status. How about if it's presented just as this is what candidate A said, this is what candidate B said, you decide? That's different, though, because now you're giving, again, anything that's, that's leading to more like a candidate's forum where you're not supporting an opinion is not inter that's not intervening in the campaign. You're not endorsing or um, opposing someone. Cool. Just giving the facts. 
Okay, and we'll keep talking about the Articles of Incorporation, that very important document, when we come back to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel with Shannon Nash. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. Mark your calendar and set an alarm so you do not miss the highly acclaimed talk show, Holistic Living with Tina Marie and Todd Allen. Tune in every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, noon Central, and 10 a.m. Pacific for inspirational, oftentimes edgy discussions on all that life brings our way with celebrity guests, world-famous authors, and everyday people dedicated to sharing positive, uplifting messages. Tina Marie and Todd Allen bring you the very best in talk radio discussions, guaranteed to make you smile. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866 472 5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Shannon Nash Esquire, and we are talking about the Articles of Incorporation that must be filed with your state for your nonprofit to become a legal entity. And another um, clause that must be in the Articles of Incorporation is the dissolution clause. And Shannon, what does that refer to? Yeah, that's really important. It, it is very. Um, it, it makes it very clear that the monies and the assets that. Um, the charity owns will always be dedicated to charitable purposes and this will happen not only during the existence of the charity but if the charity were to be dissolved and to end that those monies would then be transferred to another charity and you have to absolutely put this um, in your articles and uh, you know some interestingly enough some states have that on their form such that you don't have to put it on there um, and others don't, and you have to actually make an affirmative um, statement to the effect. So it just depends, and again, you know, it, it helps to know your state, and, and it also helps to work with someone 
who can help you ascertain that or not. For example, in the state of Texas, um, you know, this question just came up. Um, it's by what we call operation of law. The actual law, um, when you set up a charity that you're um, setting the charity up under, requires this already anyway, so you don't have to put it in, in the articles. But take an, another state, um, like in California, you, write, you would write this in your articles or, or you would use what's on the preprinted form. So you can't form a nonprofit and it's doing really well and then you decide, you know, you're tired and you want to go sell shoes and you sell your nonprofit for profit. Absolutely cannot do it. Right. Against against so many different federal and state laws. <laughs> There's state laws that prohibit that as well. Absolutely can't do that. Okay. Now, who needs to sign the Articles of Incorporation? Who needs to be listed from the organization? It all depends on the state. There are states where um, an incorporator can sign it. So the attorney, I've signed many Articles of Incorporation for a client, and they haven't had to sign it at all, depending on the state. Other states require um, someone from the board to sign the Articles, and they even require you to list the board of directors um, in the Articles of Organization. It all just depends on the, the state, and so you know that's another. Again, with I'm, I, I cannot highlight it enough with articles because it's such an important document. It is really the document that you want to make sure that you've at least had somebody who's knowledgeable look over it just to make sure you've got everything right and signed correctly. Because if not, the state will send it back to you, and something that could have only taken a couple weeks may drag on for months. Mm-hmm. All right. So we've gone through. Step one of setting up an autism-related charity, and that is to become a legal entity in your state, a legal entity in general, and you file the Articles of Incorporation. And now we go on to addressing the Internal Revenue Service and filing Form 1023. What kinds of things does that ask for? Well, a lot of things. Um, it's, you know, the, the, the basic document is about nine pages with, you know, hundreds of questions. And most of the questions are yes and no questions. It also includes um, a financial statement that you have to fill out, almost like a, a profit and loss statement and a balance sheet that you have to fill out. Um, it asks for questions about who's on your board of directors. They want copies of um, their bios, which, by the way, you know, for some of my clients, that tends to be the part that's the holdup because people want to write this elaborate bios. You really don't need that. You only need a couple of sentences just to give the IRS a sense of who the people are that are going to be um, associated with the organization. But it asks a lot of very detailed questions about your activities, what you're planning on doing, how you're planning on fundraising, um, and then about the people who are you know, running the organization. All right. You mentioned the, the financials. What if you're, you know, you've just gotten back an affirmative answer from the Secretary of State on your Articles of Incorporation in February, and, you know, you had the bright idea in January. You got back a positive response from the Secretary of State in February, and now you're a legal entity, and you're writing off to the IRS asking for tax-exempt status in March. How in the world would you fill out your financials when you really haven't got a clue how much you're going to be bringing in or putting out? Well, it's a it's a it's a it's like a budget. So they're not necessarily asking you for what have you done. It doesn't look back in the past. It's like a forecast and a budget. What are you planning to do in the future? And you basically need to look at okay, it's like a business plan. If you're saying to me that you're going to do these type of activities, you need to budget out how much you think you can raise to do these activities, whether that be from charging people 
to come to them, take a, da- a dance academy, may um, charge some charge the, the children to come to the academy and take the lessons to um, someone, let's say, who is running something else that you wouldn't sell tickets to, but maybe you would be putting on like an art exhibit or something like that. You would instead be getting um, sponsors and donor money, if you will. Um, you need to have a plan. And so the IRS is asking you for the next three years, because it does look at a three-year period, tell me how you plan to raise money. And it, and it should just make sense and be in line with what your narrative says. And so, for example, take the example of someone who um, – who puts on an autism um, camp, a kid for um, kid, uh, a kid camp? You will describe in detail in your narrative of the 1023 um, when you're going to hold the camp, how many days, you know, how many kids, etc. And then you need to come up with the price. You come up with the price for charging the kids, and whether the kids pay it or if you get sponsors to pay it, you know, you need to actually come up with that. And you put a number to that, and you put that on the the financial. This is how much I plan to raise. And then here's how much I think the camp is going to cost for transportation, for the space of the camp, for insurance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, Terry, you have to look at it as a business plan. And in doing any business plan, as you would for a for-profit, you would come up with financials to, to see if it was a viable plan. You've got to do the same thing with the nonprofit. Are officers or board members or others who help the organization allowed to receive compensation in any capacity? And and by the way, just so everybody knows, I don't believe that you should start up a charity in order for, you know, people to be able to draw wages. But if they're working, you know, 80 hours a week or something, are is anybody allowed to receive remuneration in any capacity? Uh, yeah, I get this question all the time, like weekly. Sometimes it seems like daily. Absolutely, nonprofits are um, able and should, in my a personal opinion, pay for the people who run them, not to be confused with um, volunteers who, let's say, serve on the board of directors or they're volunteers who, you know, um, come and help out with the kids or whatever. Those are volunteers. I'm not saying that that's um, a paid position. What I'm saying is that the people who run it, which is typically an executive director, an administrative assistant, the day-to-day people who answer the mail, who make sure the website gets done, who make sure that the proposals get out for sponsorship, et cetera, those people should um, and often are paid because this is their job. And so the nonprofit in that way is employing them um, and, you know, just like any other business in that way, should be, look at hiring them should look at having contracts with them, should look at um, putting them on a payroll, giving them a W-2, et cetera. In that way, the nonprofit has to operate in a very business-like manner. Um, and, you know, they, they should pay them. Where it gets really interesting in the nonprofit sector, and this is where I think a lot of people get very leery, is that there is extra rules regarding um, compensation of officers um, and highly paid people in the nonprofit that don't exist for for profit. And by that I mean the compensation the law requires has to be what's called reasonable. And this is really, um, there's laws that have been enacted at the federal level and some states have these laws as well. This really came as an outcry because in the nonprofit sector there are a lot of really unfortunately famous cases of executive directors and, and people in power on the board really taking advantage of nonprofit coffers and, and stealing money, really embezzling money, or misusing the assets for personal use. Um, so 
such that now there's a whole body of law. There's um, something called the intermediate sanction um, laws and the federal laws, and, you know, various states have their own laws. For example, California has a nonprofit integrity act. And those laws basically say, look, you know, you can pay these people, but their pay has to be reasonable. And to figure out what's reasonable, nonprofits really um, should take look at what similar situated um nonprofits and organizations are paying people for the same job. And I mean similarly situated as far as geographically located, size of organization, type of organization, et cetera. There are salary surveys out there on lots of websites. Um, there's, um, you know, job postings in um, places like Chronicle Philanthropy, um, Salary.com, GuideStar. All these places have you know, online tools, some of them for free, some of them you have to pay for, where you can ascertain how much other people are making for similarly situated jobs. The nonprofit has to do that, and it has to meet about it with its board, and whoever you're voting on cannot be a part of that meeting. They have to recuse themselves. The nonprofit then has to really, um, the board has to really document, this is what we did. Here's the meeting. Here's what we looked at. We're writing down all the comps. We're writing down what we looked at, and here's what we decided to pay that person. If you do that, which I don't think is hard and unreasonable, then you pay the person and you pay them a fair wage for doing their their job. But I think it's unreasonable to say that the nonprofit will be um, run on completely 100% volunteer hours. In general, those nonprofits don't succeed very much. All right. And when we come back from break, we will talk about some other matters related to filing Form 1023 with the IRS, what's part of public record, and what regulations are in different states. When we come back to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel with Shannon Nash, thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. 
If you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Shannon Nash talking about setting up an autism-related charity, and we were talking about some things to do with IRS Form 1023, which you need to file for tax-exempt status, some things that were asked for on that form. Shannon, how much does it cost to file the form? Okay, so currently the IRS charges $850 to um, file this form with most nonprofits. There is a a cheaper fee for um, organizations that are going to be extremely small, um, raising less than $25,000. But, you know, in general, um, most people are not striving to be a small organization. They are striving to be, um, you know, as big as they can possibly be. So it's basically $850. Okay. And how long does it usually take to get approved or to hear back? Well, currently, um, you can actually go on the IRS's website, and they will tell you on IRS.gov under their um, exempt organizations link, and they will tell you exactly where they are in the process of approving applications. They'll say, for example, you go on today, I'm not on, but it may say that they're still on applications that were filed in April or February or something like that. So you you can kind of look and see how long it's taking them. There is, um, on average, I tell people, look for four to six months. There is um, an expedited process where you can apply for a quicker response from the IRS if you've got um, extenuating circumstances, such as you have a, a donation or an event that's happening soon, and if you don't get your tax exempt status, you're going to lose out on that, those monies, and those monies are a major part of your funding. Um, you know, they account for you know 75% of the money you're bringing in. Okay. And can you just summarize the benefits of the 501c3 status once you're approved? Well, again, as a 501c3 organization, you do not pay taxes, which is a huge, uh, federal taxes, which is a huge benefit. Also, people who give you money get to take a tax deduction, which is, um, you know, another huge benefit because it helps you in your fundraising. Um, if, if a big part of your fundraising is also going to be for grants or for, from corporations or other foundations or the government, you have to be a 501c3 to even be able to apply for those monies. So, um, those are some of the, the major advantages. Some of the smaller advantages that people don't think about is you get, for example, um, a reduced um, postal rate for mailing with the U.S. Postal Service. Uh-huh. Um, also, well, you know, we've discussed a little bit in the beginning, you may be exempt from other um, state taxes as well, like the sales tax, et cetera. Okay. Let's talk about the state regulation. So after the charity receives tax-exempt status, what kinds of forms do they have to file with state or one or more yeah. states? Yeah, well, it depends. They need to first go back to their home state where they're incorporated and see, um, first of all, is this a state that even has an income tax? Because remember, there's states like Texas and Florida that don't have an income tax. But let's say you're in a state like California where it does. 
you do um, need to file a form with California that says, hey, you know, I've been uh, recognized as tax-exempt with the IRS, but now I want to be tax-exempt with uh, the state of California. So you've got to file a form with them. It's typically in most states not that cumbersome. You usually have to fill out a very short form and just attach a copy of your IRS determination letter and maybe even your IRS application. And then they usually have a very small filing fee, and it's usually under $100. A lot of states I see it's like $20 and $25. You file that with your state, and you go on about your business because they'll, you know, pretty much they they usually approve these, and they'll send you a letter in the mail that says, hey, you don't have to pay state taxes as well. Okay, that's the big one. The other big one is you still have to um, register with. In most states, it's the attorney general's office, but you know you've got to look at your state to what's called solicit funds from the the public. Some people know these as called as charitable solicitation license. Basically, it's a license that you get that says, hey, you know, if you look me up in the state, it'll say that I'm a bona fide nonprofit and you, the public, can make a donation to me. Um, the point of this is to, to help the state ferret out between those organizations that are bogus and that are preying on people's kindness to real um, legitimate organizations. And typically all these organizations are listed online. So you need to get a charitable solicitation license. Those are the two big ones. The other ones um, depends on what your organization does. Um, in a lot of states, you can get what's called a sales and use tax exemption. And it basically says, hey, if you're a charity, you're not going to have to pay sales taxes on the goods that you purchase um, in this state. The other, um, and, and there's a whole application process, and, you know, it depends on the state. I've, I've seen it be very difficult to get these in some states, and I've seen it be very easy to get in some states. The other um, tax exemption that you may apply for in your state is a property tax exemption. And, again, that's going to apply not to every charity but to charities that are going to own real estate. In a state, they may be able to get a property tax exemption, although i got to say that this one's a lot, usually one of the harder ones to get in states, particularly given our economy and many states being um, strapped for funds, property taxes are usually a big way for states to make money, and they're oftentimes reluctant to um, to relieve anyone from paying property taxes. Shannon, how much of this all becomes public record that anybody can go in and look up on anybody else? Well, um, one website that you know has really become kind of like the premier website as far as um, the charity database is called GuideStar.org. Um, you also could look at Charity Navigator. A lot of these sites, there's a lot of information that's public on organizations already out there, including a lot of people don't know this, charity tax returns are public record. And so a lot of times they're already online. If you can't find them online and you call the charity and ask for a copy of its tax return, it is legally required to give you a copy of its tax return. Hmm. So um, all of that information is supposed to be open to the public, and if the charity does not provide it, it will be subject to penalties um, from the IRS and, you know, eventually could get in a lot of trouble if it doesn't provide that, that information when asked. Well, we'd just like to tell our listeners that uh, Shannon, in addition to having presented at Autism One, Shannon Nash has two articles, two articles in which she is featured in uh, the July issue of the Autism File magazine, an article about setting up autism-related charities, and uh, an article about 
Trailblazers, Two Strong Women, and you can uh, pick up a copy of that uh, by going through www.autismfile.com or writing to Kim Linderman at kim at autismfile.com, and you'll also get to see some really cute pictures of Shannon's kids. And how are they doing, Shannon? Oh, my kids are great. I have three boys. Yes, and, and how your son who is uh, had the autism diagnosis, how, how's his journey been? You know what? It's it's been great. He's 12 years old now, and you know, um, going back to that time when he was 18 months, two years old, to now, I could have never um, imagined not only the progress that he's made, but the progress in the field of autism, um, the the strides that have have been made, the people that we've met, the lifelong friendships that we now have. Um, with other families, um, with autistic kids, you know, it's such a bond that I, I just would have never even dreamed that this I would be in this place um, over, you know, 10 years ago when we first got the diagnosis. It was such a lonely, lonely time, and now, you know, we're surrounded by so many people. I've gotten such a wealth of information, help, um, therapies, you name it. I mean, the autism community, I've, I've really seen it grow and blossom like a flower, and now, you know, I feel like the sky's the limit. Now, And you know, instead of thinking when I first got the diagnosis about how he'll never do this and never do that, you know, my whole life is, our days are filled with, oh, when's he going to do this and when's he going to do that? I mean, um, at the Autism One conference, I, I met another, just a great conference, another group of people who were looking at, you know, um, what we're going to do with regards to housing and, and support for these kids as they as they get older and become adults and, and things of that nature. And so there's a whole nother, you know, excitement that has that has filled me about just thinking about the opportunity for for him um, when he becomes an adult. No longer, as I say, does he his only option is to become an adult, live in my basement, and, and make widgets. I mean, there's all kinds of programs out there, all kinds of, of housing, you know, structures people are setting up. It's an exciting time. It really is. Well, Shannon, thank you for that beautiful testimonial to hope, and thank you for demystifying this sometimes intimidating process so that more people can help more kids. Thank you so much for having me, Terry. To our listeners, my guest next week is Deborah Jastrzewski, the founder and president of Practice Without Pressure, a Delaware-based U.S. nonprofit that is working to change both the perception of people with disabilities and the ways in which they receive services. For questions about this program, please email me at taranga at autismone.org. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Enzymedica would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit AutismOne.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga.